I tell people like you don't have to be a millionaire to be a philanthropist. Anybody can be a philanthropist. I was named after a female warrior. All my life, my mom's been telling me your name means brave girl. I had always questioned the conventions. The traditional model minority ideas did exist of financial stability is the goal, and then eventually settling down in marriage. So not only am I choosing some, you know, something that is like very unconventional, but also there's nobody to like mentor me or guide me. So. For me, impact really meant being able to work closer to the people that are doing the work. When I feel that I am not being true to myself, I, I go into a very numb space. Feminist philanthropy is a mutual responsibility as solidarity and sisterhood with people. Hi listeners, thank you so much for choosing to tune into the Permission to Become podcast again. I'm very excited to share with you this powerful episode with Amara, a true female warrior goddess at heart, who is not only redefining the paradigms of what it means to be a woman in her own life, but also leading the movement of feminine philanthropy at Global Fund for Women. I really hope you will enjoy listening to Amara's personal journey to becoming, as well as our conversations around raising awareness on gender and social justice, power and privilege, and decolonizing wealth under the new paradigm of feminine philanthropy. Lastly, I will be sharing an exciting announcement in March about an experiment that I will be running with this podcast. So stay tuned. I can't wait to share it with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Permission to Become podcast. This is a podcast about Asian American women exploring their boundaries and permissions around self-discovery and personal empowerment. In this podcast, we will dive into the untold tales of Asian American women breaking out of who they should be and becoming who they truly are. My name is Joyce Bao and I'm your host on this podcast. Hi, Amara. Thank you so much uh, for joining the Permission to Become podcast today. I'm super, super excited to have you here. I am honored and thrilled to be here and frankly speaking, very flattered. <laughs> so thank you for invi- inviting me. And I am so glad we were able to connect last year and you, you know, thought of me and reached out. Yes, yes. Yeah, we have such a ser- we had such a serendipitous meet right before the lockdown at the Hivery. Uh, I think it was around Women's International Women's Day. So, um, yeah, and that was when I learned about your organization and uh, Global Fund for Women and all the amazing work that you do. So, I am just super excited to dive into the conversation um, of hearing a little bit more about your story and the, the work and the impact that you're uh, you're providing for this world. So, I would love to start by just you telling the audience a little bit about like who you are, your background, and what you're currently doing. Um, well, starting with my name, Amara, which I feel like um, in many ways is uh, interesting because I was named after a female warrior. So my, all my life, my mom's been telling me your name means brave girl. And um, name, my name has been butchered most of my life. But what is really exciting was to finally see that Kamala Harris's grandnieces, the youngest one is a three-year-old and her name is Amara. And finally, it feels, you know... <laughs> I made it. 
I am, uh, have been in the nonprofit industry for almost 10 years. I currently work at Global Fund for Women. Um, I'm the development officer. So for the last several years, I've been in philanthropy, accidentally fall into philanthropy, and I have been in philanthropy ever since. Um, I am a Northern California, Bay Area, Sonoma County native. Of course, uh, growing up in a very um, small town, and uh, a very small South Asian community over there. And um, however, you know, ever since, and maybe it was part of just belong, you know, being in a community that is so monolithic over there. Uh, I always wanted to be in the public sector. Human rights was like the, the big umbrella for me, but the idea changed um, as I, you know, went to undergrad and, grad school and I think it started out with human rights and then it became very niche to like youth literacy and girls empowerment and um, adolescent girls and sort of seeing this power and privilege lens when I was teaching and then that from there evolved into I really just wanted to be in a, a women's rights space a women's empowerment space or a gender justice space yeah I mean that's that's like such a rich journey um, of you having come across all of these different areas um, around human rights and then working for women. So I, I always kind of am curious about people's like upbringing and how that shaped their, their worldview and their beliefs. So I'm really curious, you mentioned before that you grew up as the only daughter um, in your family. So how did that shape your um, perspective or your passion for wanting to work in human rights and also um, to really work in gender justice. Right. And I, you know, it's interesting. Anytime I tell people I have three older brothers, like there's like a jaw drop moment. Right. And then I'm like, don't worry, we have a huge, you know, most of my older brothers, we have an age gap enough that, <laughs> that we don't have to, you know, worry about it. Um, it's so my mom, even though, you know, it's like a South Asian tradition, you know, traditionally South, South Asian households, um, this myth and stereo, stereotyping of um, not, you know, a girl is a burden or, and it comes with a lot of, um, you know, like in a typical scenario, you will hear about uh, child marriage or honor killings in a lot of areas and, um, you know, dowry and, and essentially, you know, um, sometimes they're seen as a, um, a financial burden, uh, you know, some, you know, or, you know, um, again, very, very fortunate. Um, my mom really wanted a girl, which is why I have three older brothers. You're the blessing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So in many, many ways, I think um, I was able to escape some of the very traditional, um, you know, South Asian uh, tr culturally um, sort of inherited ideas. And, you know, I did grow up, grow up with a lot of friends who were like, you know, you know, being your um being light skinned is a thing in South Asian culture. And that was never a thing for me. I know a lot of um, girls young at young age in the summertime were like, don't go outside or wear a hat because you will get, you know, darker. Um, and in that sense, I think my mom really did just embrace my, my free spirit. And it's, um, it's interesting. What I do see is that we, 
although they're like those ideas didn't exist, but the traditional model minority ideas did exist of, you know, um, you need to get a certain job, you be you should be able to support yourself and you should be able to buy the car and buy the house and be able to have a, um, you know, financial stability is the goal and then eventually settling down in marriage sort of was you know was there because that's what my brothers did and um setting yourself up for retirement and as and I think maybe it was a blessing that my brothers were older as I saw all of them go through this journey I think I was just old enough to realize like that's not what I want um I think for them it was just very um everything was just very black and white and for me it was um I realized well you know a, I don't want to, to do any of these things that we're supposed to do, like doctor, lawyer, um, engineer. Um, and I have all of those in my family. <laughs> Your parents already checked off the box. <laughs> right. And so I was like, well, there's nothing left for me. I mean, I was going to be a lawyer. So that there was that. And um, but then, you know, again, like I can talk later about it. I decided against it. But yeah. it was one of those things where I sort of realized this is not the path I want to take because what I started realizing for me, I don't need to, as long as I am content and I'm making an impact and that's uh, all I need. I don't need to be um, hoarding wealth. I don't need to be um, hoarding material things. And I always think about it, like where, where does this all go? Like you, you know, you got your house, you bought your house, you bought your luxury cars, but like, you know, at the end of the day, if it's not fulfilling um, or, you know, not meaningful, and that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to do something professionally that you are really passionate about. But as I started realizing, if I am going to be doing something every single day of my life for a majority of my life, uh, do I want to be miserable just because I'm doing it because, you know, it will pay me a lot and it will set me up for retirement. And then, you know, I'm not like, yeah, and then you leave this planet one day and then what, you know, um, is this how I want to spend the rest of my life? But there was this moment of enlightenment. And again, there were many moments in between where my brothers were trying to convince me to like, you shouldn't do this. And again, I, as you know, I had told you, I'm a, a, a Sagittarius and an Aquarius. So with all of that came this very much of like, nope, I am going to be my, um, my freedom and my free spirit and independence were, uh, were big. And I have sort of in that sense, always pushed against um, the grain. There's not a, a lot of brown people, South Asian people who are in social impact that I know of. There's nobody in my inner circle. I don't know anybody in, in the space, right. which is why I'm so curious to hear <laughs> your story. There's nobody in my space. So in that sense, I really, you know, I really did have to push hard. And I remember even at one point, my dad saying that, you know, a, I was supposed to, you know, poli-sci major. He was like, do something that will get you a job afterwards. What is poli-sci going to get you? And, and, you know, and there were times when, you know, you do give up, given to this pressure of, as you know, any South Asian um, <laughs> a person does and or a kid would do at you know uh, because you know we're instilled with this like your parents know best your you know this idea of what they what they want you to do and part of it is you know like dreams that maybe they had wanted and again as immigrants you've seen them work so hard and have come you know you're like they've given up their lives and this is you know you know there's this, this guilt that comes with it um 
even going to grad school, my dad was like, you know, you, I am so, you know, thrilled that you have this passion of like social impact. Um, but it should be just a passion, which means like you can pursue it on the side and get a different job, <laughs> you know? It's like we're told growing up with this belief that our passions are meant to be what we do for a living. Right. Right. It's like, it should just be your side thing. You, if you enjoy doing this, like you can do this after work, you'd, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then or even, you know, when I've been on this path of like switching jobs or getting out of grad school and because I ended up getting an MPA and my, uh, focus was public policy and public management, which then gave me this opportunity to also go into government work if I wanted to. And, it could be at any level. And we all know, you know, if you do end up going into the state, you will end up with better benefits and you will have a retirement and you can retire early and you're set. And then as, you know, like, again, there was that pressure of, from my brothers, I've, you know, heard several times, like, why aren't you getting us? Why, why nonprofit? You know, why would you get, why would you want to get paid less? And um, why aren't you not applying to any city jobs or county jobs? Um And, you know, same thing with, you know, when I had wanted to go to law school because I wanted to go to law school for international law, there was a lot of pressure from my, um, my older siblings saying, you know, no, um, why don't you get an MBA instead? It'll be so much more beneficial for you. And I get, I think it was this thing of like, why don't you just do this? Um, So there was a lot of, I guess, imposing of, of ideas and, um, and I think for me, part of it was like, okay, you just don't want to deal with me. <laughs> um, be, and I think the other thing I uh, am realizing is that sort of because then I decided to go on a different path than any of them, I also didn't have a blueprint that any younger sibling would have. Yeah. And that brings a lot of um, fear and uncertainty mm-hmm. because right. you are... Um, pursuing an, an untrodden path in your family or maybe even a, a, the people that your fa- your pe- uh, family members know about like you're just really going into this uncertain path right right so not only am I choosing some you know something that is like very unconventional <laughs> but also there's nobody to like mentor me or guide me or like help me to like this is how you apply to do this or this is how you will you know so there's nothing th- there for me and Again, because there's not a lot of people who look like me in the industry. <laughs> that was the other thing. <laughs> um, so a lot of it was, yes, like this sort of uncharted territory. And I was like, Amara, you're going to have to figure this out on your own. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, so what I've heard so far in your experience, which I think is really interesting, is like in your, are you in your journey to like define your path? there were a lot of like pushes like against you from um, the masculine side, like your three older siblings and your dad. Right. So I'm kind of just curious, like, like how was femininity like defined in your upbringing um, in whether it's your via your mom, your grand uh, grandma's um, woman in your culture or upbringing, like how was that defined and like kind of imparted in you growing up? So my mom comes from um, from her, she has six sisters. So um, it's a very strong, yes, feminine household. 
And I think, so the interesting story is, I think there is, um, my mom has, um, it, there are eight siblings altogether. And there's, um, there's only two of them daughters who, um, actually my mom is the oldest one and she's probably the only one who actually ended up going to college and finished college. Okay. And are they all in the States? Did you grow up with, grow up with uh, your mom's siblings? No, they're actually none of her. Like I, now I have like cousins who live here, but most of my family, mom's family actually, yeah, lives like her siblings live in Pakistan. She is the oldest one. She, um, her, she actually ended up like moving away to go to college in her time, which again, as I'm thinking about it, I was like, wow, that must be like a big deal for her. The oldest one. And I'm thinking this is like in the sixties right? Like late sixties. My mom like moved away, went to a different city, lived in a dorm. She like went to college. She finished it. And she tells me her, her, so her younger sisters, none of them actually ended up finishing college. Some of them, like most of them dropped out to get married. So I think that part of that is the difference that I now see between me and my cousins too, where my mom, because like she went that route and she like herself moved out and she did that um, and she had this life of like what it means to have um, female friendships. Mm, yeah. And I'm just th- even thinking like back, probably back in her time, not many women were in college getting educated, especially from the, that conservative culture. And even if, you know, again, like sending your daughter away to another city and like live in a dorm for several years was the other thing. Um, I, her way of thinking was different. And it's funny, I laugh with my best friend sometimes I'm like you know what I think my mom was like the OG feminist I she had never told me not to be um who I am um and again you know and speaking of masculine you know like I think because I've always sort of gone my own path and part of the reason was you know if I am going to be um defying what everybody's telling me to do like I'm you know I have to stick to it I'm going to be as authentic as I can and so you know I you know I would get into trouble, not trouble, but like I'd get comments all the time for my siblings. Again, I was like being proper or, and my mom never really like how I sat or what I did, but those were some comments or, you know, and I've always let my, my hair to be just natural because I have really wavy hair. And when it's longer, it's really wavy. And all my growing up when I did have like my brothers would make fun of like how my, my hair is wild and crazy. And it's, He's like, you look like a hippie uh, or, you know, like I would get all these comments. My mom never cared, but they did. Right. Um, and I think part of it was also I was like, you know, it's really interesting if like that is sort of instilled in you and then you chose a p- partner based on those ideals. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, so I did get that pushback from like the masculine energy. Yeah, it's like you're you're on your mother's side, like you had a really strong feminist like role model. And then contrary to that, you also have very strong masculine push against your like your identity, like who you are, and you had to fight for that. Like, I'm just kind of curious, like, how did you balance that growing up? Like, when you mentioned you didn't have any mentor or didn't have a lot of mentors and guys like how I'm just really curious, like, how did you work up the courage? Um, yeah, I think it, it hasn't been easy. And I know I hear from a lot of people, like, you know, and I feel like I know I make it look easy. 
um, that this has just sort of happened organically and I figured it out. And so I know, you know, when I, when I think back, I'm like, wow, that was a lot of work, Amara. <laughs> um, I think for me, I had always questioned the conventions. Um, like I was ever since I was in high school, it was like the status quo and the conventions were like, but why? <laughs> who said we have to do it this way? And in starting from something very small, like I remember in you know, high school, everybody was reading Harry Potter and I refused to do it. And it was like, everybody's reading it. Why? Is everybody just jumping on the bandwagon because we have to read Harry Potter? So I was like, I refuse to read it. I'm not going to read it. But then again, also with that came like, I was, you know, started getting interested in all these um, social justice initiatives, you know, like I remember like reading about Walmart and how, you know, capitalist culture and um, this fast food culture and all of these things that were coming around at that time, you know, that really piqued my interest. And the thing I realized that if I really want to be able to pursue this, and this is my authentic self, then if I don't show up as my authentic self in my day to day, um, I'm going to have a really hard time. I will constantly be battling. Um being putting on a facade versus like what I really am and what I started realizing as I got older is that disconnect when I feel that I am not um being true to myself and I'm not connected to what I'm doing I I go into a very um numb space and like a kind of a and I start feeling this is like a a very superficial space for me. Um, so this, I think for me, it was like this internal battle. And I think part of it was like, Amar, if you do need to stand your ground, that also means that you have to make yourself vulnerable. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, like how you found your path to social justice. Cause you mentioned like, even in high school, you stumbled upon all these reading, like when everyone else is reading Harry Potter, like, how did you, how did you know, like, this area of working on human rights and social justice is like the work you want to do it's interesting so again I grew up in a very you know white town and um it was really interesting you know like there's not a lot of people who look like me it wasn't until high school that I um started learning our teacher a history teacher actually um made Um, Howard Zinn part of our required reading for history and it tells history through the point of view of an alternative point of view which we don't typically read in history books because history is written through the point of um, the U.S. and the colonists and um, essentially from the perspective of um, white men. Um, Howard Zinn was sort of like my first eye-opening experience of, well, yeah, like we, how come we never read about this, the story of the side that are like the victims of history. So I think that was like an eye-opening point for me. Um, and then sort of pushed me in that direction of like, why, why do we, or why are we accepting things like the way they are being presented to us? And um, I remember like in, during our senior year, we had to do work, a required senior project. And, you know, and people, you know, you had, you could pick anything and you had to put in a certain amount of volunteer hours and doing that. 
Um, and at the time I was also in journalism and I decided that what if my friend and I, we tag teamed and what if we did like a two page layout in the school newspaper and we just covered like global issues that are happening. We wrote about it. So we picked like 10 topics around and then we that's and we wrote those articles. We did our research and we wrote all these articles, conflicts happening and, you know, things that we don't read about in the mainstream media, um, you know, things that we should be aware about, you know, right now. And then we tried to do uh, there was a the tsunami in Japan at the time. So we were like, well, why try maybe we can do attached like a uh, crisis funding to it so let's try to like fundraise and whatever money we get we can send it to the the un crisis fund and sort of have them at you know send us a letter you know how the money was used and you know if we can attach like some sort of like a um a giving part to it so that was kind of like the beginning of it all i think because it was you know so interesting to me i of course started reading more and I started watching movies and documentaries that were like, you know, um, the military industrial complex, which like who 18 year old wants to watch it, but I was watching. <laughs> and then I think about, you know, I got so into this idea of um, sort of making a social impact and the work like activists are doing, but at the time I didn't fully understand it, but I was just so fascinated and inspired. And then I remember like in my sociology class in college, like we watched motorcycle diaries which is based off of Che Guevara's life and I felt I was like whoa this is interesting like he was a doctor and um like all you know like it basically covers his like he's writing like his motor like it, it follows his journey as he's writing his motorcycle and eventually ends up in this community I believe it's leprosy at the time um and I think for me it was just so like people have done this people have basically like stood their ground and uh, done amazing work and it's hard but for me it was very inspiring just like reading about all of these people and um hearing their stories and that sort of I think was what pushed me more and more and um when I wasn't, you know, I was a poli sci major and econ major, and then, but I was constantly looking for things to do to be in public service. So, I I interned at the governor's office. I've interned with like our local politicians too, and then I did um, as part of Amnesty International and Model UN because I wanted to do be able to like still have that, um, um, like that. I think because I feel like that's what sort of drove me. Uh, and that, you know, I think one thing led to another and then you have all these like world events and um, you just sort of think like, what, what are, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? Yeah. Well, so tell us a little bit about like, so you um, studied political science and econ in college, but then you decided uh, to actually pursue a law degree initially. So tell us about that part, like what made you decide to become a lawyer? Right. Lawyer, it was the checkbox, but it was like, but I'm doing international law because I want to do human rights because that is what I, you know, that was my passion. And that's all I knew, right? Amara, this is all, if you go to law school and become a lawyer, you can be a defender for these people, these activists who are doing the work. I got into law school and at the time I had a few friends who were in law school and both of them said, you know, don't do it. Um, We think the kind of work that you want to do 
you will have, you will be miserable. The kind of person you are, you will be miserable for several years before you get to do the work you want to do. And I think, and then that sense came like this pushback from, well, what, you know, if you really want the support, why don't you do an MBA? You don't need to go to law school. And I remember thinking, it was like, but I don't want to do, you know, (laughs) I was like, that is not what I want to do because I do not want to work for a corporation or, you know, be a consultant. So did you defer law school or did you? I deferred law school for a year. So I was like, let me figure this out. Let me defer this for a year. Researching like what other opportunities are there available that will sort of put me in a similar space, but may not be as niche. And I ended up finding uh, this master's in public administration idea. I was like, would well, that sounds good where the broader area, I'm not going to be restricted to just practicing law. It puts me in the public sector. And from there on, I can, you know, pursue nonprofit. But again, I think uh, when I started my grad school program, most people, yes, again, did go into like city, state government, county. For me, it was so much red tape and bureaucracy. I just wanted to be like connected because I felt so far removed um, from the work. And I really need that. Uh, to stay true to what I want to do. Yeah. So, cause you mentioned the word earlier, like impact, right. And impact could mean so many different ways for, for so many different people. Like, so for you, like what did, what does like impact mean to you? So I think for me, um, it's, it's interesting. So for me, impact really meant being able to work uh, closer to the people um, that are doing the work or are in our actively looking for solutions and are actively pushing for change in their communities just being able to see that and i think that is for me the driving factor um to stay connected and being inspired yeah i I think what i'm hearing is like you want to be really entrenched in the fabric of like that human connection and seeing how the work is weaving the community that we live in and like seeing the changes rather than like being far removed working on a computer and like typing away what might be the changes exactly and you know you may be filling in data for some government agency which is pushing something trickling down to something uh but that for me felt so far removed from the community and yes as you said like the fabric and the interconnectedness that is there and then when I was in grad school is when I actually fell into my first fundraising job and realized that this is something I'm good at. The other thing I've started realizing, like, this is really what keeps you connected, Amara. Like, this is what inspires you to keep moving to push for these people the way you are able to. Mm, yeah. So tell us a little bit about like how working in fundraising and later you mentioned that you um, worked many years at Big Brother, Big Sister. Like, how did how did that manifest into the impact that you wanted to see in, in, in your work? So I think a fundraising is like an interesting um, area to be in. Um, and philanthropy is an interesting, especially um, I feel like now there's such a, there is a, like a new era which is really awesome to see. For me, it was A, not only was I in the nonprofit sector, which not a lot of South Asians or brown people do, B, you don't see many brown women 
in fundraising. It's mostly a very white women space. So all of that comes with this idea of also this non-profit industrial complex where unfortunately a lot of the organizations are led by um, white folks who may not be representative of the communities, but they're serving those communities, but not having the resources to be able to um, serve those communities. Um, so it's interesting for me where I was, we were primarily serving children who were black and brown in, in, in the Bay Area communities, yet leadership looked nothing like any of them. Did the, the staff that was actually working directly with them look like them? Absolutely. Uh, but there was nothing that, for me, it was really ironic working at a mentorship organization where you're supposed to look up to people who look like you. There was nobody like me to look up. <laughs> it was, again, a very eye-opening experience, um, even though, it, you know, and then you start realizing that a lot of the organizations that are, that came into being hundred, you know, several years ago, I think Big Brothers Big Sisters has been around for hundred years. But what has been carried along is these very antiquated ideas of not just in philanthropy, but also just in programming. Like some things just don't work that worked in the 80s. It doesn't work. Um, and if you want to actually serve these communities and actually benefit these kids that are in the Bay Area and you actually want them to provide um, mentorship, then we really have to roll up our sleeves and actually change the system it is really comfortable to stay in the system and you know I've and because we were so comfortable staying in the system there were things that were you know if I was vocal about something it was almost um in many ways like shot down it was an, an act of rebellion because it put you out of your comfort zone yeah I think that's interesting because it just sounds like while you're in philanthropy and supposedly helping people in need, in a way, it's actually perpetuating the system that has disempowered those. Very much so, because you um, either um, are taking the money and keeping the system because you're pleasing the donor, because you want to do what the donor wants to see. But what about what these kids need? And... Um, because isn't that like why we exist in the first place? So there's this like balance of like, how do you, you know, like how do you figure, figure this out? Um, you take the money, but as you said, you keep the power and you keep the privilege. And, and I think it reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've heard of um, Anand Girdas' book. Um, essentially it's this idea of, yes, a lot of, you know, people will use wealthy elites are um well you know give all these um grants and donations and large donations and you know engage in philanthropy and are in like very higher level elite but the idea at the end of the day is you are at the end of the day hoarding still the the, the power and the privilege because you are not changing that you are not letting anybody to come at the table from those communities you're trying to give money to although the facade is that you are I, I have given away so much money. I am a philanthropist. But if you don't give me space on the table and you don't make it participatory, and then when you pass on, you pass this on to your kid, uh, it perpetuates this, yes, systematic problem. 
Okay, this is super interesting because I think we're diving into like the conversation of like money and power. And this is what I read in one of the articles that you sent me around like what is a feminist approach to philanthropy. And I thought it was really interesting um, how it described the way we work with power. It's like there's the power within and the power to, and then there's power with, and then there's like power over. And like, I think in some way, the, the more antiquated way of philanthropy is like, it's still power over because like, I'm the donor is standing from the perspective of like, I'm the rescuer, rescuing the victim. And it's perpetuating that story of victimhood. It's like, you're a victim and I'm giving you money, but that person is not empowered, like from within. Right. Absolutely. And I, it is unfortunate, but in many nonprofits, this um, idea of white saviorism exists. Like I made that happen. I gave the money to you and I made that happen. That, that was me. Um, and it goes back to also, as I'm talking about my leadership being really white, right? It was, um, we, you know, like we made it happen. And this pat on the back of, you know, like I am doing great work but on the backs of people of color who are probably, you know, not getting paid as you, as much as you, they probably don't have all the benefits. They are probably, you know, so this um, idea of, yes, it very much exists of pro- like you, the, you uh, as a person who's giving the money, you dictate where the money goes or you dictate how this project should be used. And I think it, again, also, you know, poverty porn plays into it. Like you show, um, starving kids in Africa and Asia and like that's what like gets people to be like oh my god you know it's like playing to that narrative weaving back to your own story too because the environment you grew up in where others are telling you to get married and like find someone it's like again it's perpetuating this like um, almost like trying to find a savior sort of story um, and you're fighting against it because you're like no this is not my truth like this is this is not the path that I want to like perpetuate and continue to live on. And then this led to your current work, <laughs> which really to change the story. Exactly. Which is why, you know, again, I'm going to make like a silly metaphor, but <laughs> you know how people, again, going back to this, people say like, you know, like I found my other half and I'm like, but you were never a half. You were always full. You were always your own person you were always whole. And I say the same thing about people trying to like help these communities and help these kids is like, these kids are whole, they or these communities and these women and these marginalized um, folks, they have, they are whole. And we need to um, respect that. And we need to, uh, you know, they have dignity and integrity. They are whole, like they don't need your help, you know, quote unquote help. <laughs> um, so then, you know, this, yes, this narrative of like, without me, they wouldn't be, you know, and like, these people are whole and you should treat them with as whole humans. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just makes me also really think of like changing philanthropy from within, from changing the mindset rather than just the outward doing and giving and put pouring money into something. It's more of a healing perhaps of like shifting in the mindset. Right. 
Um, it's very much so, yes, being intentional about your giving um, and not thinking of giving as a, a form of, I think you can say, quote unquote, like charity. This is, I, I, this mindset, like this is a mutual empowerment. And um, as you know, in our conversations, I know you, I've mentioned like this, this feminist philanthropy that this is a mutual responsibility as like solidarity and sisterhood with, with people, not something that I am trying to do because I want to see that it's, it's essentially this idea of like mutual healing and mutual transformation of systems and mutual transformation of structures and attitudes. So how do we, how are, how can we be more, um, intentional about our giving versus making it um and trusting people uh versus just um giving money for the sake of um tying it to something you think is a good idea for that community when it's absolutely going to be destructful for them or they don't need it i'm I'm curious if you can expand on the de- definition of feminist philanthropy for like people who are listening because this is a totally new concept, especially the first time I heard it. It is sort of set in this premise of trust-based philanthropy, and which means that when you are um, as a as a giver or a funder or donor and you're giving money, um, when you are handing it to an organization or handing it to us, um, you are not, you are surrendering your power and you are surrendering your privilege over that money because now it belongs to the community. And now you have to trust the community, the activists on the ground, organizers, grassroots, that organ, you know, you have to trust um, them. You have to trust women because <laughs> um, philanthropy for the longest time has always been attached to the man. When you, even like when a woman gives money, it is attached to her partner's name, right? If you're a large. So this thing of eight women taking charge and changing the systems and actually reclaiming philanthropy, like this is me doing this, not my husband um, and, or my partner. Um, Because it's typically seen that, you know, when in single women tend to get more than single men. Even in marriages, they say that women drive um, the man in the marriage sometimes to give money. So it's less about the, the, the quantity, but I would say about how that money that you gave has the power to transform um, systems. Um, I'm curious, like in the, in the, from the lens of feminist philanthropy, how do you back to like impact? Like how do you measure impact and what does success quote unquote look like in, um, in this new paradigm? The beauty of feminist philanthropy is that when you are giving, you sort of tell it's sort of given as a general support, which means, um, again, if you are, an organization that is pushing for, let's say, I don't know, farmers' rights in India right now. Um, we know there's so much shift, like there's shift that's happening, and your organization is working towards a certain, you know, like a policy change. 
But the beauty of that is like this funding is flexible. Like if, for example, during this time, like COVID happened, um, do you, you now have the funds that we gave you to like shift and pivot? Should you need to use that money to keep the lights on? You do that. Whatever you need to do, um, we, it's, it's flexible funding. Um, and it's the way, I mean, at, at Global Fund for Women, what we do is we do multi-year funding because you can't just do one-year funding and then expect the group to be like, take off. So it's like said, giving, not only said, you know, funding them with this lens of like feminist philanthropy, but also giving them this um, support where they're able to build a foundation and keep pushing forward and create that space and then be able to like connect them with other um, people, whether it's through convenings or conferences and being able to talk with other activists who may be working on similar um, issues in a in completely different area. How can, you know, we bring like tech and innovation into it now as well that, you know, with COVID and um, how do you manage crisis that all of a sudden happen and you, the work is halted? How do you, or, so again, it's trusting them to pivot to what is needed in the community because something happened um, that was not anticipated. Going back to when you do um, give money, you expect numbers back. The, the success is shown because you like did this X, Y, and Z, and this was an outcome, but it's very subjective with um, a, a successful story from a partner on the ground that was able to do something that is impact, that is success. Um, there's another concept that was really interesting that you you brought up to me, which was the decolonizing wealth. So I'm really curious, like, how does that play a role in feminist philanthropy and the work that you do? Take a step back and you look at all these um, colonial ideas we've all inherited. Um, wealth is one of them, right? Um, if you think about it, um, most of white wealth in America is built on the backs of black slaves and indigenous folks. I don't know if uh, you got a chance to listen to the 1619 um, podcast that came out a few years ago, and it basically talks about slavery in the US. And it's very eye-opening and it's really interesting because they touch, essentially say like democracy and capitalism in the US was built on the backs of these people. And we exploited these people, right? And um, so in that sense, like wealth is just has just been so colonized and attached to this idea of the default being the white male or in some cases, the white female. Um, but how do you sort of make it more, how, you, how do you start going backwards? How do you sort of unspiral that and um, make it, more inclusive and community-oriented and less hoarding. How do you learn from, um, from examples that are participatory, which communities have, you know, Black communities, Brown communities, Indigenous communities have done for so long. When they've needed something, it's mutual aid and you all pitch in together and you help somebody. Um, so this idea of how do you, um, sort of move past this idea of wealth and power that are interconnected and, um, 
unraveling that, that I don't, I don't need to hold on to all of this and then pass it on to like my, um, uh, you know, my son or my daughter. Um, how do you then take that and be able to use it more effectively um, to actually push for like real change versus um, giving for the sake of giving? Yeah, I think it's just that, again, it's like that paradigm shift, a mindset shift, really, of our relationship with money and wealth and power. Right, right. And again, it's this idea of, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but we're starting to have these conversations. And if you, you know, when you think about it, these are conversations that will make people feel uncomfortable, but these are the conversations I think we do need to have. It could be uncomfortable for people because it's, it's just a, it's a very different way of looking at like, yeah, like how, how we're treating wealth, how we are um, thinking about our role in this, these power dynamics, like what roles we're playing. Um, and then how can we move things forward? People don't necessarily have to be a philanthropist to um, inspire change, but it's like, how can we in our day-to-day lives, whether it's in our, with our family, with our workplaces, in our community, like how can people start to shift that mindset, that paradigm, that like the stories that have been conditioned? Exactly. No, I completely agree. Like I, I tell people like, you don't have to be a millionaire to be a philanthropist. Anybody can be a philanthropist. But this idea of decolonizing works into like, is whatever you're giving further exacerbating the problem and actually just pushing for whatever systems we have in place to just sort of keep them going because it's comfortable for you, which is why these conversations will be uncomfortable because they will make you think outside of the box. Um, and But if you are not trying to identify the problems and actually understanding like how we can, um, your power and your privilege can um, activate some of these solutions, um, you know, in humanity and social justice and racial justice and gender justice. Um, so being, yeah, a little of, you know, like that checking of your privilege every day, whether you're giving, you know, um, whether you're giving $10 or a million dollars, um, and not just that, I, you know, I think about this, you know, idea of like, you know, I have this privilege of being at home and working from home. Um, how can I use that privilege? Because I know not everybody has that. I love that. So like maybe a way for the listeners to start to like question or maybe get curious about this area is just starting to ask themselves what privilege they already have. Yeah. And I think that's a hard question. And well, it's definitely will make people, you know, a lot of us uncomfortable because again, as a woman of color, I, I know I still have privilege, right? Like me being fortunate enough to be, you know, having food in my fridge and having, you know, still be able to pay my rent and, you know, live in a space and work from home. And I know, you know, I'm not going to get exposed, but, you know, I know we started out with this crisis is not discriminatory and I'm like, it is, it is not the great equalizer. Um, I have the privilege of being safe. 
not everybody has that, you know? So just taking a step back. And I think this year has pushed us all to um, get a little bit uncomfortable with ourselves and, you know, uh, take a step back and, and look at our, our, the power I have, the privilege I have. And I may not have a lot of power, but I mean, uh, but the power I do have is today talking to you and being able to impact maybe one person. So I think this is like this share of, yes, the, the, you know, like you and I sharing this space together today. And, you know, this is the power that we are using today. This just reminded me of a, a YouTube video I recently seen. It's called What is Privilege? They basically did this experiment and they had a bunch of people like starting with the same starting line. And then they would start to talk about like these different privileges and every privilege you have, you take a step forward and the ones you don't have, you take a step backwards. And it was just, and they started off all holding each other's hands. And in the end, it's like when they finished, like you see, it's like the, it was uncomfortable. It was really uncomfortable for the people who participated. It's interesting. Yeah. And we don't think about this, but yeah, these conversations these talk, will make us uncomfortable, but I think it is, it is the way forward um, for, for us to sort of heal and also push for force um, for gender justice, which I just feel like women's issues relate to every single thing that are, that is happening. You know, they are intersectional, they're interconnected and they're intergenerational. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been such an enriching conversation. Like, I feel like this fire in me, like maybe it's your dosha, like your fire. It's, Yay! it's like stirring up in me. So as we're wrapping up, I'm just curious if you have any parting thoughts for the audience who's listening as they step into their own journey of becoming. Wow. And I, I will say, you know, um, over time, the one thing I have, that has really, you know, um, helped me in many ways is I think staying true to yourself. And I think a lot of that will then drive because it is really easy to get um, influenced because there's just so much happening, especially in this, in this world right now. Um, I, I think I was showing up every single day as your authentic and, and your full self. Um, and doing your work and doing the part and um, staying vulnerable and, and empathetic. I, I think those are, those for me have been, again, and I think it's um, healthy to like have disagreements and it's healthy, but you know, we can like agree to disagree on several things and, but it's, it's important to like push yourself um, um, maybe just a little bit out of your comfort zone a little bit. Um, uh, and I think for me, that's when you are making yourself vulnerable. Oh, that is so good. All right. So we're going to inspire our audience to just be a little bit more uncomfortable. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. I am honored. Thank you so much for listening to the Permission to Become podcast. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, or subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. I'd really appreciate it. I'd also love to hear any feedback you have. So feel free to email me at permissiontobecome at gmail.com.